0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at org. We've already seen Jesus feed a multitude of 5,000, and we've seen Jesus walk on water, and last time we saw Jesus get into... A little bit of a, an argument, a, a conversation with his followers over who he is. And during the course of that, he insisted that he is the bread of life. And so we're picking up in that conversation in verse 41 of John chapter six, where we read these words. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread... He will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So as the conversation continues, uh, Jesus' hearers, they're troubled by the things he's saying. He's talking about himself in ways that suggest that he's not a prophet in the mold of Moses. He's actually something much more than that. He actually seems to be claiming to have come down from heaven So he's making bold claims for himself that the people find difficult to accept. And in verse 41, we see that there's some grumbling. John says, the Jews grumbled about him. Now, it's interesting, scholars will tell you that when John says this, he says not the people or the multitude or whatever, but the Jews grumbled, probably he has in mind leaders. So he's talking about people who are uh, probably high up in the synagogue, the local synagogue, people who have influence, over the multitudes, people that that other people are accustomed to following. So as Jesus does miracles and as he speaks, he gets a gathering. A bunch of people follow him. And among those people are are, are some who are accustomed to being leaders themselves. And so they see that there's now a a gap opening up between uh, Jesus and all of his formerly enthusiastic followers. And into that gap, these, these former leaders enter. And they fan the flame of skepticism, so to speak. Right? They start some murmuring, some grumbling. And they, they, they zero in on this claim of Jesus's to have come down from heaven because they know that can't be so. That can't be true. right? Because they know who Jesus is. They know where this guy came from. They know his family. They know when he was born. They know where he grew up. They know people that knew him when he was just a kid. So it's like you say you came down from heaven, but actually we know that that you're just like us. You're you're a human just like us. This objection is one that Jesus had encountered before. Not surprisingly, he ran into the exact same thing in his hometown of Nazareth, where people found it really difficult to accept that this guy that, that everybody grew up with is suddenly now the son of God. How is it possible that, that this kid who grew up in the carpentry workshop, who ran around, and we saw this, this, this young man here, how is it possible that, that he came from heaven? doesn't make a lot of sense. The thing that they're struggling with is what we would recognize as the doctrine of the incarnation. Right? They're looking at Jesus, and they're seeing in Jesus someone who is fully human, right? who has all of the hallmarks of being human. He, he not only has a body he, he has a history like he, he's not only in this moment corporeal and and in the flesh but he's been that way for a long time the way humans are like he was small and then he grew up just like all humans do like this is something familiar this is a sense in which he's no different than anybody else and yet he's claiming to be different from everybody else so they struggle with it Like, how is it possible for Jesus to be spiritual when he's clearly physical? How is it possible for Jesus to be divine when he's clearly human? This is exactly the mystery that John opens his gospel by addressing. If we look at John chapter 1, at the great prologue that John writes, we read these words. In the beginning was the word, the logos, by which he means Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's the first five verses of John's Gospel, and it's all about the divine Word, the divine logos, which he associates with Jesus. But if you skip down a little bit after getting that sort of cosmic vision of the word who is the agent of creation, the one through whom all things are made. If you skip down to John chapter one, verse 14, you read these words and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is how the human being Jesus can claim to be the Son of God, to be the bread from heaven because He is the Word. He is the Logos. He is the Word made flesh. He gave life to the world at creation and now He has come to give life back to the world through the work of redemption. They're surprised that that the Messiah that the Son of God would be standing before them in the flesh, but they shouldn't have been. It's not surprising that the Word took on flesh and dwelled among us. In fact, not only is it not surprising, but it's necessary. For Him to give that life through redemption, He had to take on flesh and dwell among us. The Messiah, the Christ, the Promised One, the Redeemer had to be not only divine, but also human. Fully God, but fully man as well. The stumbling block, the thing that they're, they're unable to wrap their minds around is at the heart of the gospel. It is necessary for Jesus to be what they see before them. It's necessary that the bread that gives eternal life be fully human, come with a history, come with a background. He had to become flesh in order for us to have life. But Jesus doesn't respond to their grumbling by explaining to them the doctrine of the incarnation. He doesn't open up his scroll of the Gospel of John and start reading from chapter 1. It hadn't been written yet, so that would have been difficult. Instead, Jesus does something else. And as he often does, uh, Jesus doesn't answer the question directly. He kind of comes at the problem from another side. And in doing so, he illuminates an aspect of the question that we weren't thinking about, right? So people are stirring dissent. They're asking questions, right? They're they're raising objections to the claims that Jesus is making. And Jesus doesn't go toe-to-toe with them and argue the evidence. Instead, he starts talking about what's behind the objection. He starts talking about what is behind their skepticism what is behind their unbelief. Listen to what he says. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I will raise him up on the last day. That reference, by the way, I will raise him up on the last day. That is the third time in this chapter that Jesus has referenced future physical resurrection of his followers. He will raise us up on the last day in the flesh once again. It is written, Jesus continues, in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So those who are taught by the Father come to the Son. That's what he's saying. Those who are taught by the Father come to the Son. And he's paraphrasing Isaiah when he refers to the prophets here. He's paraphrasing Isaiah 53, verse 13, which says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord. They will have direct knowledge. They will be uh, educated by God himself. As you think about that, it should remind you of something that the prophet Jeremiah says. In Jeremiah 31, when Jeremiah prophesies the the coming of a new covenant, listen to some of the things he says about what that will be like. This is Jeremiah 31-34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. If you work in education, I apologize. But it appears that what we're being told is that when it comes to knowledge of God, the middleman is being taken out of the equation. It will no longer be necessary for someone to come along and teach you the things of God. Because God Himself will be your teacher, and this is indeed how the new covenant operates. We don't believe in Him secondhand. Our faith is not in people whose authority we trust, so that we follow what they say about God. Rather, we are taught by God Himself. It's interesting if if. We're right about this speculation about what's going on, if this grumbling really is being stirred up by, like, former teachers, people used to being respected, suddenly eclipsed by Jesus, then you can see there's a layer here that's kind of uh, cutting against them a little bit. You don't need this kind of instruction, Jesus is saying. You must be taught by the Father in order to come to me. It doesn't matter what your other teachers are telling you. But your other teachers are skeptical, and there's a reason. But it's not the reason you think, and it's not the reason they claim. It's not because of a lack of good evidence. Jesus says, they do not come to me because they have not been drawn by the Father or taught by him. Everyone who is drawn and taught by the Father comes to the Son. There's a calling there that that God does, and it it is effective. It works. It works. When the Father teaches you, you learn. In the Father's classroom, no one falls behind. Jesus is essentially posing the question, how can you come to me unless the Father calls you? When he raises that question, he illuminates an aspect of salvation we're not accustomed to thinking about. Because when we think about the claims of Christ, we tend to think about the the psychological ramifications, the intellectual aspect. What are the arguments? What does it mean for me to believe? And now Jesus is saying there is a spiritual dimension. There's something deeper going on than just intellectual assent. There's something deeper going on than mere persuasion. A few verses earlier, as we saw last time in verse 37, Jesus told us That all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's like the positive side of the statement. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And I will lose none of them. Now in verse 44 we get the flip side. No one comes to Jesus unless drawn by the Father. That spiritual dimension is necessary to our salvation. This is uh, Calvin commenting on these verses. He says... It is a peculiar gift of God to embrace the doctrine which is exhibited by him. Christ declares that the doctrine of the gospel, though it is preached to all without exception, cannot be embraced by all, but that a new understanding and a new perception are prerequisites. And therefore, that faith does not depend on the will of men, but that it is God who gives it. He gives us not only the choice of believing, but faith itself. That last line is the key. He gives us not only the choice, but faith itself. When we talk about the good news of the gospel, we're accustomed to thinking of it in this, this light. Like we are all sinners. It's a terrible thing to be a sinner, to stand under condemnation. But the good news is God has given you a choice. Jesus is saying more than that. The good news is not that God has given you a choice. The good news is faith itself. The choice becomes so important to us. The idea of choice and all that it suggests, it's something to cling to. It's something even to be proud of. You made the right choice. But the gift of the gospel isn't the gift of a choice. The gift of the gospel is more than that. It is the gift of faith itself. Listen to the way John speaks about this in the prologue again in verse 10 through 13 of John chapter 1. He says he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the children of God are those who receive him, who believe in his name, But they're not born of the flesh. In other words, their salvation isn't ethnic. They're not saved because they were born into the right tribe. But they're also not born of will. In other words, they don't save themselves by a work of faith. Rather, they are born of God, of this supernatural work of God. Which doesn't mean that we don't have will and exercise it. It doesn't mean that we don't make choices. Oftentimes, we read the Bible as if one teaching that Jesus gives is meant to cancel out the other. And the way that that you discover what the truth is, is you you pick the one that seems best to you and you let it steamroll all of the rest. So some of us want to look at at Jesus' words and, and see... Uh, no one comes to Jesus unless drawn by the Father and say, and what he means by that, of course, is and everyone is drawn by the Father. And it's only the failure to make the right choice that, that makes all the difference. Which essentially takes all this language of drawing and says, that was kind of pointless. There's really no reason to make that distinction. But of course there are sometimes others who see this language. No one comes to Jesus unless drawn by the Father and say, this means our choices are illusions this means nothing is real this means you think that you have a will but really you don't you're just a puppet on a string that of course is false as well we're given the spiritual dimension and salvation we're told this is real and all of the other stuff is real too all of the other stuff is real as well in other words we do make choices And those choices do matter. And the Bible over and over again holds us responsible for what we do. No one in Scripture is treated as if because of God's involvement in their life, they're not culpable for the sin that they do. That never happens. We're responsible. It's possible to find yourself like, like Judas does in this strange situation where the Bible is teaching that what you did was ordained by God and you're justly responsible for it. as long as we approach scripture with that either-or mentality, we'll never make sense of this. But Jesus isn't speaking in the language of either-or. It's both-and. He's showing us there's a higher reality. There's something behind what we see with our eyes. Our choices are real. They're real causes for the things that happen in our lives. But the Reformed scholastics would call them instrumental causes. They're the causes that bring things about immediately, but they aren't the ultimate cause, which is God himself. God himself is the ultimate cause. We will not bore you with theories of Aristotelian causation. If you're interested in that, we can talk about it later. But for our purposes, all you need to grasp is this. For order, in order for us to have life, not only did the word have to be made flesh, but for us to have life, The spirit must work in our flesh. There is a spiritual calling from God that is necessary. It's interesting, whenever this subject comes up, like the work of God and salvation and how uh, to understand it, the Bible raises these things typically in a, a distinct context. So you get into all of the election and predestination and calling stuff, usually in the context of assurance or trying to understand uh, how we've come to believe. Or in this case, where Jesus is, is hinting at how these people have come not to believe. Those, that's where you typically get this. Where you don't get this is in the, uh, the call to belief itself. So the Bible doesn't say things like, believe because you are elect. Believe because you are chosen. Rather, it's the other way around. We're told if you believe, then you can find comfort in that work of God before the foundation of the world. It can give assurance to you. And it also guards against pride so that you don't reflect on your good choices and say, you know, I see why I'm going to heaven. Because I look at people around me and they've made bad choices. It takes away from us, in other words, uh, a sense of, self-righteousness. So Jesus, speaking to a multitude whose leaders are giving them good reason not to believe, doesn't argue the facts with them. But he does undermine their credibility in a different way. He's saying to his followers, don't look at their unbelief and think, well, if they don't believe, then maybe I shouldn't either. Maybe they know something I don't know. Maybe they're just asking the hard questions that that I didn't take time to ask. Jesus says there's something else behind their unbelief. And rather than following them, we ought to pity them and, and pray for them. Then there's this interesting aside. Some people will look at this and say it's parenthetical. Uh, some will even say it's sort of borrowed from somewhere else, that John sort of plugs in this saying of Jesus' that doesn't quite fit, where he starts talking about whether or not anyone has seen the Father. But I think if you consider the, the flow of the conversation, you'll see that these remarks actually make perfect sense. Like Jesus, in verse 46, sort of breaks off what he's saying. He said, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And then you've got a dash in the translation. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Well, what's Jesus getting at there? What's the point of making that statement? First of all, there's an important echo. Like, it's important for John that Jesus is making this statement. Because John actually says the exact same thing in his prologue. Again, in chapter 1, if you look at verse 18, John makes the point, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So he's talking about Jesus, and he says, none of you have seen God like no one has. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known which is some complicated English there, but it's kind of interesting because who's he referring to when he refers to the only God? A lot of times we kind of default to Father equals God, but here he's saying that the only God is seated at the Father's right hand, making the Father known to us. He's speaking about the Word. He's speaking about the divine Word, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So it's the Son who is fully God, who is seated at the Father's right hand, who makes the Father known to us. And in that knowledge of the Father, we have life. So that's the way in which Jesus is the conduit of life. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. If you go back to the grumbling, the objection that those leaders had to Jesus, they actually say, This is the son of Joseph. We know who this guy is. We know who his parents are. We know your daddy, basically. You can't fool us. You can't tell us you came down from heaven. We know who your father really is. And Jesus is saying, you've never seen my father. You don't know my father. You're strangers to my father. I'm the only one who can reveal the father to you. Like Jesus is talking about his own relationship to the Father. And that relationship, it's one of mediation. Jesus is our mediator. Between human beings and God the Father, there stands only Jesus Christ. It is only through him that we can know God. There is no revelation of God outside of Christ. Sometimes we imagine that if we believe and then we're faithful enough, that maybe God will come down and He'll, he'll reveal more to us, He'll tell us things that even scripture doesn't know about. And it's not unusual in the Christian world today to hear people getting new revelations from God, stuff that's well beyond what Jesus gave to us. Well, Jesus himself is saying, yeah, that doesn't happen. I'm the one through whom the Father is known. No one else has seen the Father. It is only through the Son that Jesus is known. And he continues in verse 48, I am the bread of life, reiterating the point he made before. And then he starts talking about manna in the wilderness. He's coming full circle. Because remember, last time, this conversation began when the people asked for a better sign than the feeding of the 5,000. Because Moses had fed people for a generation in the wilderness, Jesus had done it for an afternoon. So they were looking for more from Jesus. And now he's going to compare Moses' miracle, so to speak, The manna would keep people alive in the wilderness for 40 years. But Jesus was the bread that would keep them alive for eternity. If you eat this bread, he says, you will live forever. And then he adds one fine point. The bread that I'm talking about that you must eat is my flesh. Is my flesh. As we see next time, that's going to set off a whole new round of objections. But let's soak in those words for just a moment. As I said before, for us to have life, the word had to be made flesh. The word had to become flesh, and this is why. To have life, we must eat of this bread, his flesh. There had to be flesh in order for us to consume flesh, to be fed by it. Now, you have to remember, as we saw at the beginning of John chapter 6, remember the things John told us that no other gospel account tells us? one of those things was when these events took place. John tells us they took place around the time of Passover. And if you remember that, if the shadow of Passover hangs over these events, then all this talk about meals and bread and eating has a different significance than it would without that information. Because remember what Passover was. Passover is an old covenant feast of remembrance that looks back on a sacrifice that was made to save the people, to save their lives. That's what the Passover was. And now Christ is telling us about a different feast, about a different kind of eating that is also based on a sacrifice that will be made to save lives once again. Right, as if the, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant ritual was the shadow, Jesus is now talking about the reality. So in verse 51, which is our last verse, the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, there's really two things Jesus is reminding us of here, two things to hold on to. The first is that he's giving his body, his flesh, as a sacrifice. I will give my flesh, he says, for the life of the world. I'm giving it. He's speaking about his death. Jesus' death was not martyrdom. Jesus was not a great guy who died for a a wonderful idea. That's happened many times before. But the thing about Jesus' death that is unique is that it was a sacrifice. That he offered himself up as a sacrifice on the altar, a sacrifice of atonement. This is why when John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching him, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He recognizes prophetically that what Jesus has come into the world to do is to offer up his flesh as a sacrifice for sin. He is the Lamb of God. It was a lamb that was slain in that old sacrifice. A lamb whose blood covered the doorposts and made the angel of death pass over. And now Jesus has come as a lamb to sacrifice himself, to give himself, to give his flesh that he took on in the incarnation to give it for the life of the world. Those words for the life of the world emphasize something else about the sacrifice of Jesus. Not only is his death a sacrifice, but it is a vicarious or a substitutionary sacrifice. In other words, Jesus didn't die so that he might live. Jesus died so that we might live. It was a sacrifice he made on our behalf, not on his own. He did it for us. He sacrificed himself to gain life for us. There is no life outside of him. There is no life for us apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ. From from the sacrificial death of Christ, out of that death flows everlasting life. The fruit of your sin is death. Because we are sinful by nature, willfully sinful by nature, allowed to run its course, the end of our story would inevitably be death. But when you come to the Son, when you taste of Christ, Christ who is our sacrifice, when by faith you are joined inseparably to Jesus, then the barren wilderness of your life up to now becomes a feast of everlasting, a table set for us in this life that looks forward to the everlasting life to come. The life we have now and the life to come we have by being united to Christ who gave his life so that we might live. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsuefalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.